Welcome everyone to Idiots with Idioms. On today's episode, we're talking about idioms from ancient Greek and Latin, and we're joined by a very special guest to talk about those. I'm Ethan Arsht, uh, your the co-host of Idiots with Idioms, joined as always by my partner in idiocy, Marcello De Giorgi. Marcello, before we do anything more, you have an idiom you'd like to share with us. Ethan, you're really getting better at pronouncing my surname. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. So the first idiom of the episode is to burn your bridges. To burn your bridges is something that is related to ancient Rome or to ancient times, even if it's been used since the 19th century in common language. It refers to a military practice that was to burn the bridges after that your soldiers had crossed the river. By burning the bridges, soldiers had no means to get back and were forced to fight the enemy if they wanted to survive. Nowadays, this idiom is used to denote an action that has really strong consequences and cannot be undone. With the development of the military, bridges became boats. In fact, there are numerous examples of military chiefs burning the boats in order to force an invasion. I'm thinking about the Muslims in Spain in the 8th century or the conquistador Cortés, who invaded basically what, what is nowadays Mexico, it was the Aztec Empire, and he burned the, the boats. Actually, he didn't burn them, he destroyed them by sinking them, which I found out that there's a really nice word in English, which is scuttling. So if you ever want to show off, you can say, yeah, I just scuttled by my boats. Not if you want to show off your boat. <laughs> If you want to show off your bravery, no, I don't need a boat. I'm going to conquer whatever is there. Back to you, Ethan, with the next idiom of the episode. So thanks, Marcello. Uh, I also looked up an idiom. Actually, this idiom comes from Latin and originated from Latin. And the idiom is verbum sapienti sat est, which means a word to the wise is enough. Today, we just say a word to the wise. And I always thought that was very confusing because when we say a word to the wise, I mean, shouldn't it be a word from the wise? Because we always say a word to the wise, wear closed-toed shoes on roller coasters. Just a random idea. But if they're already wise, why do we need them to tell us, tell them that? It should be a word from the wise because it's the wisdom coming from them. So I learned that it means a word to the, if you say the full expression, it means a word to the wise is enough, which is that wise people can infer a lot of meaning from just one word. So if you just say one word, perhaps if you see a person getting on a roller coaster with, without closed-toed shoes, you could say, stop. And they could infer from that that they should not proceed onto the roller coaster without closed-toed shoes. I wish I'd chosen a better scenario to demonstrate the use of this idiom. However, suffice it to say that the full expression makes a lot more sense. A word to the wise is enough is a lot more logical to me than just a word to the wise. Federico, you are an expert on Latin and Greek idioms. Are you familiar with this expression from before? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I actually know it, and I've looked it up for preparing for today's appointment. I was looking at uh, ancient idioms, and I thought about talking about a word to the wise. So, Federico, I've already said that you're an expert on uh, Latin and Greek idioms, but uh, can you tell us a bit more about yourself before we jump into it? Yeah, 
Hi to everyone. I'm Federico. I am a PhD student in Venice. My field of research is Greek poetry. I mainly study epic poetry. And there is a feature of uh, Greek poetry, and especially epic language, that is really close to what we nowadays consider idioms in our languages. And that's why I'm interested from a linguistic point of view to, to these recurrent expressions. When I, I listened to the first episode of your podcast, I immediately reached out to, to Marcella because I really wanted to, to talk about my research in, in this field. And I came up with uh, some ideas for, for today's meeting. Do you have a favorite epic? Uh, the Iliad, the Iliad, I would say, yeah. Nice. I think everybody, everybody prefers the the Odyssey, but I think that the depth that we can find in the Iliad, from a demotive uh, point of view, it's it's uh, uncomparable to to later epics, the Odyssey or uh, Latin epic. The the Iliad is really amazing, and it really strikes some aspects of humanity, like being a human. It's really like the most important poem ever written. I was thrown towards uh, items, um, thinking about repetitions in ancient poems. Um, when we read the Iliad, for instance, nowadays, it's no surprise that when we see Achilles coming to the scene, we read, uh, and here comes swift-footed Achilles, and we never see him running. Actually, there's no one, uh, there's no occasion of uh, Achilles running at any time in the Iliad, nor in the later epics or different epics. We don't see him running at any time. But the repetition every time we see Echoes, we see Swiss running Echoes, makes us fall in love with this aspect. It is like a character that strikes our attention for this feature. It is something that we find actually in Greek poetry. The performer repeated a lot of words, and the, the audience that was listening to him really loved to hear those words spoken over and over again. The story was known to everyone and heard it repeated was uh, good for everyone. And that's something that we can find uh, also in our, uh, in our idioms. When we say something, for instance, we, we can say that that's my Achilles heel. Uh, talking about mathematics, for instance, that's my personal Achilles heel. Uh, for someone else, it might be cooking or anything else. Like the discussion changes but this expression stays the same. So we find an expression in Latin, which is repetita juvent, uh, that uh, usually is translated as, if you say something twice or more, uh, it is better for understanding. You say, like, you can repeat over and over and people start to, to, to get closer to, to the meaning of your words. The original meaning was completely different. It meant that you have to say something twice if you like it. And if you want people to like it, you have to repeat it because it's uh, the way uh, poetry works. So this is a kind of expression that you can use like everyday language, like repetita juvent. And if you want to repeat over and over again, the same old things. 
but in in Greek actually and in Latin too, we have actually also the opposite. There is uh, an idiom which is in Greek is this krambetanatos, uh, which means twice cabbages means death. That's actually the opposite. So if you say twice the same thing, that's death for the listener. Uh, but that's that's later, like later conception of poetry when originality. Uh, was more important than repetition. Federico, it sounds like we have a lot to talk about. This thing of repeating things during uh, shows, could it be also related to like mnemonic? Yeah. It's really deep concept of, of how the Iliad was born. It was a poetic performance, and it was an oral performance, and it was sung by a singer, and it was closer to an hip hop performance than to like an old master writing on a scroll. It was really like a hip hop with a read given by a, by a stick, and then the poet was singing always with the same rhythm. So you had like the repetition of the rhythm going on and on and the repetition of the words. It's something that we can find in lullabies, for instance, or the folk tradition of uh, singing. Isn't it that they, like all the epithets, so like swift-footed Achilles and rosy-fingered Dodd and Odysseus, yeah, 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 mighty Diomedes, aren't they all like half of the lie in the... No. In the Greek meter, no, it, it's not off the line. It depends, but they they are repeated uh, in a very specific uh, position of the line. So, okay. for instance, you have different. We call it cesuri. It's a Latin word that we have also in Italian, and you have to imagine that you have like like a, a sheet of music, and you have like twenty four uh, rhythmic units, and you can like cut these 24 units at different lengths. When you take, like, for instance, six lengths, or let's say seven lengths, that, that's better, or five or seven or 11, it depends, you have just one expression for that length. So if, if the poet had to improvise something and already had a verb occupying the hand of the line, he had just one way to say echoes. So there was no uh, possibility of confusion for him. It was like straight ahead, like saying the line. That's that's how it worked. Thank you, Federico. This is really inspiring and uh, really interesting. And now I know that you're going to introduce us the first ever collector of idioms. The first ever idiot with idioms. <laughs> and it, it, it was quite a, a, a clever idiot with idiom because we're talking about Aristotle. It, it was the first, at least of the people I know about. I think there, there should have been someone in ancient Egypt or ancient Near East before Aristotle, but I'm not aware of it. Of the things I, I've uh, read and studied, Aristotle is the first person who ever collected items. It was really a passion uh, for, for, for him. He wrote a book 
on proverbs, items, and recurrent expressions. Unfortunately, it is lost in tradition, as we say, so we don't have it, actually. It got lost at some time, some time in the Middle Ages. We know that people working in the Athenian academia within, like his successors, uh, wrote books on expressions and items. Uh, the, the title of these books, all these books, talking about um, items, is very interesting because it's actually the Greek word for item, uh, which is paroimia. And the word is really amazing and really interesting. It could deserve like a whole episode just for, for this word because it is a very polysemic word. We actually don't really know what, what it means. Like scholars are debating over it. Uh, we know that it is uh, composed by first word, which is preposition, para, which is by, like at someone's or some, something's side. And then we have oimia, that comes from oimus, a very, uh, very complex word in Greek. But there is a kind of general consensus that in this case, it means a road, street. So somehow it points toward an interpretation of paroimia as something that you can take up and bring with you on a journey. You take the paroimia with you because it is something that might be useful. Aristotle really thought that paroimia were a kind of a condensation of wise people. Wise people, like you say, the words to the wise, wise didn't need many, many words. The items actually are a form of condensation of wisdom. So that's why I really liked uh, the, this kind of expression. And he says in the rhetoric, one of the books that sometimes we have to study for our uh, classics courses, that the parimia, the items are like children's of metaphors. So uh, we have a general idea of what a metaphor is. You say something by using something else as an image or referencing to it. And I think that that's why we have uh, so many animals in our items in Greek and Latin, because most of our metaphors come from the animal world. So an example of this that you brought up is the example of a Carpathian hare. Could you tell us a bit about that? Because we have an animal here and an animal in a kind of a simile, kind of a metaphorical type of idiom. Yeah, it is an expression that actually comes from Aristotle himself. It just makes this reference. And then we had like many scholars working on this expression, Carpathian hare. It was not really uh, clear what it was referencing to. And then we found an annotation saying that there was this kind of short story, a myth, a legend regarding a man of the island of Carpathos, which is between Rhodes and Crete, that brought uh, some hares in his island. And at a certain point, this herd uh, took over uh, the island. And that's why when, it, when Aristotle says Carpathian her is referencing to a situation going out of control. If we stick all together, we can get Carpathian her into English. Let's begin everybody to use it. In everyday situations, when you want to say out of control, you just say, you know, that guy, this is a Carpathian hair. Before you know it, the idiom Carpathian hair will be a Carpathian hair. You'll be seeing it so often. <laughs> Thank you.
Federico, Aristotle had some very specific thoughts on maxims, a specific type of idiom, which is a maxim, which of course is kind of a bit of folk wisdom, typically. And could you explain for us what his, uh, sum up his thoughts on maxims? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. We have like maxims and idioms that are close um, put together by Aristotle. And Aristotle says something really, really impressive about this. He says that uh, idioms and maxims uh, fit to older people. Elderly people are the best candidates for speaking in gnomes and speaking in paroniae. So using idioms is something that comes with age. And it is something that reveals something about Greek culture, because an axiom of antiquity is that older men are wiser, always. They are better, they came from different ages, better ages, better times, and that's why they're always wiser. So if you are wise and you're an old man, you can use idioms because you, you went through a lot of things in your life and you can condensate the meaning of an idiom in a very short sentence. If you're young, you talk too much, maybe. So I find that really interesting because a theme on a previous episode of this podcast was how idioms can be used as an argumentative uh, helper and something where if you don't really have much of an argument, by use of an idiom or an analogy, you can make it sound credible even when you don't have any credibility. It seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like Aristotle may be making a similar point here when he says that maxims are something that sounds nice, but that maybe doesn't have a lot of essence or a lot of, a lot of I should say, a lot of logos to it. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. And actually, it goes farther than that. And it says that uh, we use idioms and maxims when we speak because they are appreciated by the one who speaks and by the receiver. And it says that usually, if the receiver is rustic, like the, the herdsmen, people coming from the countryside, they are better suited to appreciate idioms. And that's why I, I, I think that that's my guess, my personal guess of the episode. Uh, we find so many herdsmen, countrymen in fables and fables that actually afterwards became idioms because a lot of our expression that's, that we have in Greek and Latin actually come from a condensation of a very short story or a very short fable. Do you find, or at least I find in my personal going abouts that... Uh... It does seem like older people are more, perhaps more prone to using uh, maxims in their speech, in their everyday conversation than young people. This is really crazy because uh, there are many studies pointing at the fact that Nestor, which is the older hero in the Iliad, talks like an old man and he uses a lot of gnomai. So he speaks in idioms most of the time when, when he takes up uh, uh, the sceptron, the 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 uh, stick, and he speaks loud to to uh, the fellow Greek heroes. He speaks like an old man, and yet his like he's perceived as the person with the most credibility. Yeah, the one who like is really unquestionable in his wisdom. Yeah, precisely. Um, because of that. Um, so I think when I kind of when I listen to people make a point, you often will find that when they go to a maxim it's because they realize that they don't have anything else to say. At least I've noticed that where, where someone will say, 
uh, because it's it's impossible to dispute a maxim typically because it's often so vague as to be non-falsifiable or impossible to grapple with. So if someone says something like an apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? It's classic yeah. English maxim it. doesn't make a whole lot of sense, probably isn't tr- necessarily true. Potentially the organized big apple lobby has embedded it in our language. However, no one ever argues with it. Like it's so much on the verge of between wisdom and nonsense that it's impossible to wrap one's head around. Uh, yeah, of course, uh, in, in the works and days, we find, we find a lot of items and expressions because the works and days is a kind of poem that uh, stretches back its tradition to the Egyptian and ancient Near Eastern, uh, Near Eastern uh, sapiential literature. So it's a kind of poem that has nothing comparable to it in our uh, Greek world. It is something that's closer to Egyptian literature, actually. So we have a lot of elements coming from the ancient Near East and the intertwining of elements from Greece and from the Near East is very, very relevant. And it's a list of instructions to a brother. So we have a lot of elements that an older brother can say to his younger fellow. So they take the, the four of economy, a kind of maxim that is relevant forever as it is. So speaking of uh, Hesiod's works and days, there's a specific idiom from works and days that we wanted to touch on, and it's, and potter is ill-disposed to potter, and carpenter to carpenter, and the beggar is envious of the beggar, the singer of the singer. From my perspective, this seems to kind of inhabit this space between wisdom and it's kind of wisdomy, but also kind of nonsense and just kind of an assertion. But I think there's a more nuanced uh, approach to it. It is. It is actually at the crossroads of many, many different things. When you take a line as the one you quoted, uh, you have different layers. For sure, you have a very thin boundary between nonsense and like very precise and very ancient wisdom. And also sometimes in some of these uh, maxims, you find uh, a, a riddle that's hidden uh, in it. So if you take something like Gnotis Auton, Know Yourself, uh, or other sapiential expressions like this one, you really have a kind of enigma underlying the surface of the expression. And the language of this kind of literature is is really interesting because at those times, uh, words were magic. So there is a layer of magic in words that's difficult to to get in touch with, as nowadays we don't have any kind of, we have a very like approach to our languages, luckily. But uh, words were meant as something really uh, imbued with religious aspects and sapiential aspects that are really difficult to to get in touch with. Wow! I, I will I will tell you about enigmas and like this this kind of stuff. It, it's amazing. We, we have like some some really crazy expressions. Uh, if you take the the tradition of the death of Odysseus, for instance, that we don't have in in the Odyssey, we don't have in any book, we just have a very small fragment in a late epic. 
it says that Odysseus uh, is slain by an electric uh, ray. And this is crazy because uh, it's it's strange. It has a sting, but it doesn't kill someone, uh, at least not in normal conditions. But it has been reconstructed that arguably the reason behind uh, the killing of this is by an electric ray is that there was this kind of prophecy that Odysseus could not be killed. Well, not Odysseus, but the hero that was in the tradition before Odysseus. So something like that dates back to the Near East, epics. Uh, an hero that couldn't be killed by a person or an animal on earth, nor by an animal in the sea, nor by uh, a bird flying. So it suggests that he is immortal. But at a certain point, a bird bites uh, an, an electric ray and the bird shoots the sting of the ray and the, the sting falling from the sky hits Odysseus and kills him. So that's kind of a workaround. So it's like cutting around the enigma and find a solution of the enigma. If someone can't be killed by an animal that uh, walks on the ground, nor swims in the sea, nor flies in the sky, how could be killed in this very, very crazy way. And it's a motif of the folk tale. We have like in Nord- Nordic, uh, Scandinavian tradition, in Egyptian tradition, we have this kind of heroes that seems uh, immortal that are killed by, by these strange occasions, like overlapping of different things. Federico, you mentioned before that there are a lot of idioms that have as protagonist animals. We have crocodile tears. We say, we say that we shed crocodile tears when we don't actually are that sad for uh, something that happened. If it were not for Erasmus, we wouldn't probably ever had this expression because it is used in a very, uh, very strange text from the 15th century which is called Mazari's Journey to Hell. And this story was very famous in the modern era because it was kind of science fiction, sort of fantasy book about the journey to hell. So it was entertaining. If you had to study Greek, you had to study Greek on something that entertained you as a reader. And from this book, we have this expression of crocodile tears because uh, we have a verb in Greek, crocodilizo, that means crying like a crocodile, so crying after having eaten your lunch. Then we have all Zwansang. Again, we have folk belief behind this expression. We have a fable by Isaac that says that a person buys a swan because it wants his swan to, to sing a song for uh, entertaining people, but the, this one does not sing uh, until it beats uh, this one to death. And while he is dying, this one sings his most beautiful song. Again, we have the popular folk tradition of Aesop, so children stories, fairy tales, and we have the higher aspect of Aeschylus Agamemnon, because we have Clytemnestra, the queen that's uh, waiting for Agamemnon to come back from the expedition at Troy, and she says that Cassandra has sung her one song, when Cassandra is foretold 
the destiny of Agamemnon in, in his house. Uh, the last one is Silent Point, which is the craziest. Um, it is widespread uh, in Europe. You have it in French, in Italian, in German, in English, in other languages. And actually, the story behind it is very, very uh, crazy. It comes from a translation uh, made uh, by uh, an old philosopher named Theodorus of Gaza. Uh, it was very, very famous in the 15th century because it translated a lot of books that people read in the western part of Europe coming from, from Greece, and it translated a lot of texts by Aristotle. So that's why I kept it for last, because I, I'd like to, to close the episode on, on Aristotle. Uh, the story comes from the book uh, History of Animals uh, by Aristotle. Theodorus was trying to describe uh, the egg of a bird, and he says that inside the yolk there is a red spot jumping, and salio in Latin means exactly uh, jumping, and there is this red spot jumping from one part to another, and that red spot is the hurt of the bird to be, and that spot jumping became the hurt of a discourse, the hurt of an argumentation, and so the salient point of uh, of a talk. On today's show, we're going to have the first edition ever of our new game, The Idiot's Gambit. So, how do you play The Idiot's Gambit? Well, it's a new show that we've come up with here on Idiots with Idioms, where we tell our contestant a idiom. And we read out three potential stories for how that idiom originated. One of them is true, two are false, and our contestant has to try and guess which one is real. Federico, are you ready to hear your idiom? I'm ready. Today's idiom is stealing by thunder. So if you are a follower, the Idiots with Idioms social media channels, you will have an advantage because it was one of our featured idioms. Here are the potential stories for how Stealing My Thunder entered the English lexicon. Story number one. John Dennis was an excellent rhetorician, but an unsuccessful playwright. The phrase, Stealing Thunder, originates with him. He invented a thunder machine in the early 18th century and tried to incorporate it into his play, Appius and Virginia. Unfortunately, Appius and Virginia was never performed, and therefore the thunder machine did not debut. Later, Mr. Dennis appended a performance of Macbeth, where the theater did use his thunder machine, and he declared, That is my thunder. By God. The villains will play my thunder, but not my plays. Option number two. Richard Knight was a very frustrated scientist. Much like Victor Frankenstein, he conducted an experiment that required an electric shock from a lightning bolt. However, he lived next to a tall house with an unusually tall lightning rod. So every time there was a storm rolling in, Dr. Knight would set up his lab and wait for a lightning strike, but every time there was lightning in the area, it was just attracted to the lightning rod at the house next door. One day, Knight walked over to his neighbor's house, knocked on the door, and said, Would you mind if I take down your lightning rod? It keeps stealing my thunder. And option number three. Zeus has the power of thunder in Greek mythology. We all know about the time that Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to humans. But what about the time his brother Epimetheus tried to steal Zeus's thunder, literally? In one of the many feuds between the gods and the titans, the titan Epimetheus tried to steal Zeus's thunder and use it to bring down the Olympians. In the end, 
Zeus caught him and declared, You shall not steal my thunder, before striking Epimetheus with a lightning bolt, ending this particular battle. Federico, you have three options today. Number one, the playwright, John Dennis. Number two, the scientist, Richard Knight. Or number three, the Greek god Zeus. I have to discard the option of Epimetheus, which is very interesting, but I'm pretty sure it is not uh, likely that it went in that way. I, I really hope that the other two stories are both true because they are amazing. So I'm really in an impasse right now. I, I don't know wh- which one to choose. I like the idea of the, uh, of the playwright and the idea that the thunder that was stolen was actually... Uh, a fake thunder machine uh, going on. And I really like it, that one. Between the first one and the second one, it, it's very close for me. Okay, but your guess is, is the first one. Yeah. Guess. Okay, that is... Correct. Yeah. So that's the... That's the yes. So congratulations. Uh, you have won. You get nothing. That's why it's an idiot's gambit. <laughs> But yes, it, the phrase Stealing Thunder is said to originate with the play Appius in Virginia that was written by John Dennis. And he uh, invented this thunder machine, which became actually used apparently fairly commonly, but the play for which he invented it never saw the light of day. So his thunder was stolen by the theater. Thank you so much. You've been a wonderful contestant in The Idiot's Gambit. Thank you. It was amazing. Thank you, Federico, for participating in this episode. It was uh, really great to have you on board. And uh, thank you, Ethan, for co-hosting this show. Thanks very much. Thank you all for joining us. Please remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on social media on Facebook at Idiots with Idioms Podcast. At Instagram, we're also Idiots with Idioms Podcasts. Or you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Idiots W Idioms. Uh, And remember, if you follow us on those channels, you will have an advantage when it becomes your turn to play the Idiot's Gambit. great this is going to be our best episode yet it was thank a you very much it was, a, it was wow. a creation it was a oh we should have put that in the conclusion <laughs> <laughs>